Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 50 now. On our website, just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Grant, Tom Junot, Catherine Miles, Lane DeGregory, Christopher Gofford, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Ganger the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Pamela Koloff, a senior reporter at ProPublica and a writer-at-large for the New York Times Magazine. Koloff was the third guest on the podcast when we first got things started back in January 2013. At that time, she talked about her Texas Monthly series, The Innocent Man, which ultimately won the National Magazine Award in feature writing. On this show, Koloff will talk about her two-part series, Blood Will Tell, her first project for ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine. In this extensively reported and exquisitely written piece, Koloff tells the story of Joe Bryan, a former principal in Texas, and a man many believe was wrongly convicted of murdering his wife. And he was accused in 1985 of the murder of his wife, which he has always claimed he did not commit. And he has since been um, arrested and prosecuted for that crime and convicted. He's serving a life sentence. Prior to joining ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine, Koloff was an executive editor and staff writer at Texas Monthly. Her work has also appeared in The New Yorker and has been anthologized in Best American Magazine Writing, Best American Crime Reporting, Best American Non-Required Reading, and Next Wave, America's New Generation of Great Literary Journalists. At Texas Monthly, Koloff was a six-time National Magazine Award finalist. In 2014, the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University awarded her the Lewis M. Lyons Award for Conscience and Integrity in Journalism. Her oral history, 96 Minutes, about the 1966 University of Texas shootings, served as the basis for the 2016 documentary Tower, which was shortlisted for an Academy Award in Best Documentary Film. As usual, we've linked to Blood Will Tell, as well as many other Pamela Koloff stories on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Pam. Hey, thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, I actually, I, sh- I should say welcome back, um, because you were on the third ever uh, episode of Gangry the Podcast all the way back in January of 2013. Uh, yes. when you when you talked about your Texas monthly series, The Innocent Man. Yes, and it was wonderful to talk to you back then, too. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that episode, which I loved so much, uh, is no longer on the internet, um, probably because of something that I did did wrong, I would imagine. Um, but, uh, but at any rate, I'm really happy to have you back on the show so we can talk about Blood Will Tell. Um, yes, thank you for having me, and um, we'll we'll do it even better this time. So I, okay. I, I have a feeling we will because I have been now doing this for five years, and at the time <laughs> when we talked, I had been doing it for 
four weeks. And uh, wow, okay. I think that original audio file was not very good and it probably couldn't understand what we were saying. So maybe it's for the better that, that we get to redo this again. Um, yeah. But uh, let's get can, to get things started um, and talking about Blood Will Tell. I was hoping that you could read a section um, uh, from part one. Uh, uh, and also, uh, you know, give whatever context that you feel like that you need to give before, before you read that section. Sure. So just for the setup, uh, my story, Blood Will Tell, is about a man named Joe Bryan, who was a small town high school principal, and he was accused in 1985 of the murder of his wife, which he has always claimed he did not commit, and he has since been um, arrested and prosecuted for that crime and convicted He's serving a life sentence. Um, and so I took a very detailed look at the case and just wanted to read a passage that has to do with the investigation uh, into Mr. Bryan's possible involvement in the crime. And this is about a conversation between a Texas Ranger who's investigating the case and a woman named Susan Kleine, who's an elementary school teacher in Clifton, Texas, where this all took, took place. Um, Many of the Bryan's friends and co-workers were interviewed in the weeks after Joe's arrest and subsequent indictment. One of them was Susan Kleine, the fifth grade teacher who first noted Mickey's absence and whom Texas Ranger Joe Wiley had brought in for questioning. As one of Mickey's few close friends, Kleine had seen the Bryan's relationship up close. Quote, I knew Joe could never have hurt Mickey, Kleine told me. He adored her. There was no scenario in which Joe killing Mickey made any sense to me. At the police station, she was floored by Wiley's very first question, which left her troubled about both the direction and the soundness of the investigation. Quote, he began by asking me if I thought Joe was effeminate, she explained. He said there were rumors that Joe was gay, and he asked me what I knew about that. Kleine pushed back but was unnerved when Wiley persisted with this line of questioning. She was aware of just how incendiary such an accusation could be for a high school principal in a deeply religious, socially conservative town. Quote, we're talking about someone's life here, she implored the ranger. And so that gives you a sense of the investigation that followed um, Joe's arrest. I'm curious, um, one, of the, one of the first things I was wondering as I was reading this, um, because you have done a lot of these types of stories when you were at Texas Monthly, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, the Innocent Man, <laughs> which we had talked yeah. about a couple years ago. Um, was this a case that you were aware of before you made the jump from Texas Monthly to ProPublica? Uh, no, actually, um, interestingly enough, the only thing that sort of overlapped was my interest in bloodstain pattern analysis, which is the type of, the, of forensic science that was used to win two convictions against Joe. He was tried twice. Um, once was his first trial, the second was his retrial. Um so I was really interested in finding a story that illustrated what I saw as some of the potential problems of this type of forensic science um, and of forensic science in general right now. Uh, and so I learned about Joe's case. There's a, a group um, in Austin that meets quarterly called the Texas Forensic Science Commission, and they are a state body that looks at um, various cases around the state where there may have been forensic science used when convictions that was questionable in some way. And um, I saw that the commission was looking at Joe's case and started reading about it and was just immediately hooked, I think, for reasons that will become apparent for anyone who reads the first section of the story. Um, 
And so I went from there. What is it about these types of stories that, um, that, that grabbed your attention? I think, um, I mean, I've tried to find a through line in a lot of the work I've done in the past 10 years. I, I don't know that there is one, but I think that one theme that I'm really interested in is what do ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances do? And so I, I was just really interested in that in Joe's case and um, was happy that it sort of provided an excuse for, you know, there, there are a lot of interesting characters and sense of place and that that provided a good way of looking at some sciencey stuff that I thought otherwise readers might not be that interested in, frankly. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you decided that this was going to be a project uh, that you were going to work on, what was the first thing you did as a reporter? Oh my gosh, there were so many things. Um, <laughs> there, were, Well, first of all, it's a 33-year-old case, so mm-hmm. if you can imagine the challenges that go with that. Um, the first thing I was trying to figure out was who was alive, and actually many of the main players either have passed away or um, would not talk to me. And just as an example, um, at both of his trials, there were two prosecutors, two defense attorneys, of those four attorneys, only one is still living. Mm-hmm. So um, there was just a lot, there was a lot of reporting that normally I would have liked to have done that was beyond my reach. So um, I sort of just made a, a giant list of like, here are all the people I would love to talk to. And then went about trying to track those people down Um and that was sort of combined with trying to find all the different pieces of the case file, which was very challenging. But once I did, um, and I sort of was able to look at, at the police investigation through all these different uh, police reports, it, it quickly became apparent that um, at the very least something was was not good about the investigation. What... Um you you utilize public records a lot um, in your reporting, you know, police reports and court records and that type of thing. Uh, and I think a great deal of this story came from that. I think that's obvious because some mm-hmm. of the people had died. Um, what's that process like for you as a reporter um, in Texas as well? Because, you know, every state has their own rules when it comes to public records. Um, is, is it easy or hard to get those types of records in Texas? And... And beyond that, once once that big package of material shows up, you know, in your office, um, I'm kind of curious, like what what your mindset is like when that finally shows up. Yeah, it's like Christmas, right? <laughs> right. You get all the documents. Um, you know, I because I've worked in Texas almost exclusively for so long, I can't. I, I don't feel like I would be a good authority to speak about what it's like in comparison to other states, but generally. I've had I've had pretty good luck um, getting the things that I needed. I, one of the most important things is that Texas, unlike California, allows reporters to go uh, interview inmates in person, mm-hmm. um, though they have greatly restricted that in the past couple of years. But, um, you know, I was able, for example, to correspond as much as I wanted to with Joe Bryan. I was able to visit him every three months. Um, so there was something there, but as far as finding everything, I mean, 
really, I just had to figure out where everything was. And when I finally figured out that everything was in this little town called Comanche at the county courthouse, um, that was where Joe's retrial in 1989 took place. And when I finally realized that everything was there, or mo- not everything, but many of the things I needed to look at were there. It was just a matter of getting to it. And then, you know, there's sort of this dance that I've done a million times with the district clerk at courthouses about, I'm a reporter and I want to look at X. And um, luckily, this district clerk was nice to me and <laughs> let me spend the day looking through things. Um, but when, when I saw what was there, I realized it would be possible to tell a story that was from so long ago in a really vivid way mm-hmm. because people had had written statements within, you know, sometimes hours of things that had happened. And honestly, the statements were so good in some cases, I thought that they might be at least as helpful as interviewing someone more than three decades later about what they remembered about it. Yeah. How long does it take you to read through just like a court file or, or something like that? I would imagine it takes a long time to go through it with the fine-tooth comb that is necessary to locate those those types of things. Right. Well, I think the thing that's... I, I really would love to hear a lawyer speak about this, but I think one of the things that's interesting about reading through the trial transcript or looking through a case file is there are things that don't mean anything to you on the first or second mm. or maybe even third pass that once you've really like understood the facts of the case, if you're lucky enough to have time to do that, um, you start making connections that you wouldn't have otherwise. So uh, it's, I think it's an ongoing process. I mean, I, I each of the trial transcripts is 2,000 pages. I needed to read those. Um, I needed to read through, I don't, I mean, there were so many, I can't even tell you how many pages of uh, Texas Ranger files and Clifton police files, but it was sort of an ongoing process Mm because I generally give all that sort of a quick read the first time. And then when I know more, when I talk to people, I go back and give it several more read throughs, if that makes sense. Right, right. Um, and that took time. And then there was there was material that was hard to get, despite everything. Uh, the biggest public records battle I had, interestingly enough, was on um, photos of the blood-spattered flashlight that was mm, at the center of right, this case. Right. And the I, I didn't say this in the story, but we, we were able to publish photos of the flashlight. But the uh, district attorney's office in this case did not want us to have those photos and um, went to the state attorney general to block our access to those photos. And I just thought that was so peculiar. You know, it's like, why is it that this DA's office that's had this case for over 30 years um, is both blocking um, DNA testing and doesn't want the public to see the key piece of evidence in their case? And I don't have the answer to that. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was very odd. Right. When did you, do you remember exactly when you decided you were you, you were going to tackle this story? Um, I learned about it early, early last year. And uh, I think I got the go-ahead in the late spring of last year. Um, and then I was starting a new job also. So there was sort of a lot of stuff mm-hmm. to learn all right. at once. Right. Because um, I been at Texas Monthly for 20 years, and then in May of last year, I started at 
ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine as part of a partnership. So was this, um, you worked on this solely while you were with ProPublica, is that correct? This was actually done, uh, this was a joint effort between both. Right, right, yes, and yes. So, so everything I do, um, like I work equally for both organizations and then everything I do is uh, published on both platforms for the most part. And uh, it, it's it's been pretty amazing because I get to benefit from sort of the strengths of each institution. And so um, my editor at ProPublica is this amazing, amazing woman named Tracy Weber, who it, before becoming an incredible editor was an incredible reporter at the LA Times and won a Pulitzer and was a finalist for another, And um, but is very modest. And she... <laughs> She she's just very rigorous while also being extremely kind and encouraging. Mm. And that I think I feel like that combination really helped um, my reporting and, and led it to some stronger places. Mm -hmm. Was uh, did you know her before you before you made the jump? I didn't. I had heard wonderful things about her and I knew she worked with Ginger Thompson and other people who are just amazing writers, Michael Graybell and many others. Um, but no, I didn't actually know her till uh, I, I interviewed at ProPublica. Right. It's always that that reporter editor relationship, I think is, is such a, an important one, especially for any type of big project. And, and it's good that you can yeah. you you can land in a place that has that editor that's going to take your help you take your work, your writing, your reporting to the next level. Well, that, that's what was so incredible. I mean, part of the challenge, you know, I'm 2,000 miles away from everyone I work with, and, you know, that can be hard, and, and Tracy made it not hard. She was just such a lifeline and so encouraging, and I feel like sometimes believed in this project more than I did <laughs> in a good way, like, you can do this, it's going to be great. And she and um, there was a, a research fellow who started working on this named Leora Smith, and Leora got so interested in the bloodstain pattern analysis part of this, which is what she had been brought in to research, that she actually ended up doing her own stuff. And she, mm. she has an uh, incredible piece coming out later this summer. Um, and Tracy was sort of, I think, inspiring us both to think bigger, you know. Right, right. Um, getting, getting back to, to the story, um, you visited Joe Bryan in prison. How many, how many times did you visit him in prison? I saw him a total of three times. Um, keep in mind that you're officially limited to an hour there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes the guards were more vigilant <laughs> than other times. And uh, so sometimes I got a little more time than that. Mm -hmm. What's that? What's that like? I mean, that's something that obviously that I've never done as a reporter. What, what, how, how is that? How is that different beyond having this time limit uh, from, from interviewing somebody in their living room? Um, that's a great question. Uh, the first time I have, the first time I interviewed Joe was actually similar to several other first times that I interviewed inmates in that the first interview was kind of a loss because the person I was interviewing just had been bottling up so much to say for so long that it wasn't really an interview as much as just like someone spilling <laughs> spilling their guts, right. so to speak. Um, 
And so I, when that happened with him, I, I was able to sort of recognize like, okay, I'm, there's not going to be much, if anything, that I actually can use from this interview, but I have established, like, I've been able to see what he's like, and we've established some sort of rapport. Um, so that was helpful. And honestly, it was just helpful to to meet him. I mean, as the story says, his presence there is so incongruous, and it, it's true when you meet him. I mean, he's this very um, soft-spoken um, what's the word? I don't even know. Just sort of gentle seeming old man. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not naive. I have interviewed people who have seemed quite lovely, who've done terrible things. That doesn't mean anything, but it confirmed what many people had told me about Joe. Um, and as far as just interviewing in prison, I mean, it's so awkward because you, sometimes you're talking through a phone, sometimes mm-hmm. you're talking through glass or plexiglass, um, there's always so much noise. Prisons are so noisy. And um, so the mechanics of it are very difficult. Um, and I just always find, you know, whether the uh, I've interviewed plenty of people who I, I was not writing about their innocence. So regardless of the um, content of the interview, I, whenever I've left prison after an interview, I just always have this very heavy feeling mm-hmm. of, like it, it really is when you, when you take that first step outside after a couple hours in any one of those places, it's, it's really a relief. Like, yes, that is a terrible, terrible way to live. And, um, so I think that that hits me every time that's never gone away. Yeah. Did you mean, I think you meant, did you, I feel for some reason, I feel like that was mentioned in the story or maybe I read it, uh, in one of, of your newsletters or, or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, yes, I did this newsletter with ProPublica after the story came out in which I sort of gave behind-the-scenes information about the reporting and some extra information about bloodstain pattern analysis, and um, I, I may have mentioned it in there, but it definitely our last visit was, uh, I'm trying to think of the way to put it, it was just very heavy, you know, mm-hmm. the stuff he was talking about, and um you know, I think there will always be a debate over whether or not um, Joe committed this crime. Um, at the end of the day, he spent over 30 years in prison, and he's a very old man who's not in good health. And so, you know, that was um, that was, that was just sad to see uh, up close. Right, right. Um, did you when you're when you're interviewing in a prison are you are you able to record or do you have to rely on on note taking and and were did you have glass between between you and Joe? Um, I did. Uh, I did all but one time. Um, there was one time they seated us in this other area and it was sort of like uh, bars mm. between him and me. Uh, but um, you, I've I've usually been able to record. It's really tricky when you're talking through those phones Mm -hmm, because um, I have this whole (laughs) rig that I use where I I have the, it sort of like, it looks like a little earbud in my ear that goes to my, um, to my recorder. And then I put my ear up to the phone and I hope that that picks up enough. But unlike a regular phone, the prison phones sound terrible. Right. So a lot of times I don't know what I have until I walk out of there. So I take a lot of notes. Um, other times, and this is true of Joe, there's glass and then there's like a little metal like mesh band at the bottom. 
And so your voice carries like through mm-hmm. those little right. holes sort of. Yeah. Um, well, I want to take a short break, um, but when we return, uh, Pamela Koloff and I will continue our discussion of her two-part series, Blood Will Tell, a project that was done in partnership between ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine. Uh, this is Gangry the Podcast. We'll be right back. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Pamela Koloff, a senior reporter for ProPublica, and a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine. We're talking about her two-part series, Blood Will Tell, uh, which ran in both publications in May. Uh, Pam, you chose to do something that was incredibly interesting, uh, and this shows up in in the first first half of of part two, because you signed up for a class in bloodstain pattern analysis. Um, Why why did you do that? Well... um so my, my lead into the story, as I mentioned, was this type of forensic science. And I, I just had a lot of questions as a lay person. There were things that didn't make sense to me about it. Uh, I had not taken science since high school, and so it had been a long time. And um, I read the main textbook that a lot of people use to do bloodstream pattern analysis, and I still didn't. I wasn't grasping these issues, and so I thought, well, maybe it'd be helpful just to go get the training, which is only a week out of my life that seems doable. Um, But it also connected directly to the story because the expert witness in in Joe's case was a police officer who received exactly, not exactly, but very close to the training that I had. It was a week-long class at a um, police department, just like I did. So... I signed up for a class that was taught by the consulting firm of the man who had taught the expert in Joe's case, and I spent a week at the Yukon, Oklahoma Police Department um, learning how to analyze bloodstains with a lot of police officers. I'm really curious about about what that was like. Um, In so many ways, it's almost like immersion reporting uh, at that point in time. Mm well, I mean, what was that like? Because uh, I, I think I read that you you were open when you when you signed up or, or applied for the class that you were a reporter. Um, were you were you the only non police officer there? And what, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I I didn't explain this in the story. I did in the newsletter right, that I did right. at ProPublica, but um, I identified myself as a reporter from the very beginning when I first emailed the consulting firm that teaches these classes. And, you know, used my ProPublica email address and obviously my real name. Um, and then I, I also identified myself as a reporter when the class started. And, yes, I was the only uh, non 
law non-law enforcement slash forensic scientist in the room. And um, no one, you know, to, to the credit of the people in my class, no one really cared. It, it wasn't a source of conversation or a lot of questions. Nobody Googled me, <laughs> um, which kind of surprised me because I'm in a room full of investigators. Right. But uh, if they did Google me, let me just say it, they didn't share that with me. Um, and so I felt like I had a pretty good view of how it is that police officers are trained in this discipline. And one of the things that interested me is in the course of researching this, I found that the expert in Joe's case who qualified to testify, um, who only had had a week of training, was not an outlier. There actually have been police officers all over the country who've testified as expert witnesses in criminal cases who've had 40 hours of training in this very, very complicated uh, discipline that involves physics and trigonometry. And um, so I, I, I was going with the intent of, is it possible? Like, can you really take, can you really spend five days in a classroom and walk out and be able to say, when someone's life is on the line, yes, I know what happened at this crime scene. So that that was sort of how that all started. There's, um, you know, and, and you, you kind of come away with a lot of, like almost a better understanding of maybe it's like some of the things that that, that expert was testifying about that were not covered in the class that you took as well. Right. So what's interesting is when I, when I, pitched my editors on taking this class, I actually envisioned it as a separate, shorter story that would sort of accompany the main narrative. And I thought the narrative would just be purely narrative, and then there would be these sort of satellite stories that we could run along with it or after it, which ProPublica does a lot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in their series. Um, and then in the course of writing it, when I was trying to actually explain what this science was, I thought, you know, like I had all these really boring explanations for it. And I thought, well, it would be a lot more engaging if I just like put the class in the story, which would involve introducing myself as a character, which is not my comfort zone. But I, I figured like uh, that way, as I'm learning the science, like so too can the reader mm -hmm. and then we can evaluate it together in a sense. Is this the first time that you have been a character in, in your own pieces? I have come in at the end of some stories where I've had to uh, because either I, I am present for something or it's important to explain why I was interviewing someone. Um, there was a story I wrote a million years ago about methamphetamines in East Texas, and um, I got to go on a... <laughs> a drug raid, which was one of the more interesting moments of my career. And so I had to explain why I was there. So there have been these moments, but I definitely wouldn't say that I write first-person pieces. Yeah, I, I think I remember like um, noticing that it, generally there was more first-person um, in this piece than what I, mm -hmm. than some of the stuff that, that I've read of yours um, before. Yeah. And I wondered if that is a, partly a style thing, because the New York Times Magazine often often uh, utilizes that type of um, mm -hmm. narration. Is that, was that an accurate assumption or? No, I think that it, it really was, it really was just how do I, how do I explain this to people without having 10 paragraphs about trigonometry and physics? Right. Like 
how do I make this interesting? And I always felt like my favorite reporting I did for the story was that class. And I always intended, mm. like, the story I wanted to write that was the side story was I wanted to call How I Became a Forensic Expert in Five Days. I was like, people will click on that. <laughs> right. um, so, it, it honestly, it was it was a decision I made just in the course of writing it. And then I was relieved that my editors thought that was a good impulse. Um, and then we sort of went back and forth on where it belonged in the piece because it's present day. And so much of the story is from 30 plus years ago. Uh, structurally, um, uh, actually, I want to go back and say thank you for not like, giving 10 paragraphs to try to teach me trigonometry yeah. <laughs> because I would not. Yeah, we wouldn't be talking today. <laughs> no, and <laughs> no I wouldn't, would have it. I wouldn't have understood it anyways. Um, I'm trying to deal with my son who's going to be a freshman in high school next fall in, in these advanced math classes and, um, and he's on his I'm, own I'm not, I'm not a math science person, but, but what I thought, I thought that was important because right. There are plenty of police officers who aren't math science people. And until recent years, many police officers, they might have had some military experience and high school and, you know, no no college. And so I, I wouldn't assume that most of them would have known these concepts either. So right. I thought it was good that I was sort of the the average lay person. Right. It's one thing that, that I that I thought about uh, when I was reading this piece, and I think probably when I was reading some of your other work, um, and that's the idea of, and maybe not just your work, but other pieces that take, where something bad happens in a very rural or very small town. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the idea that the people who are, are tasked with investigating that might not, like, have the right experience or even the background where they would be able to do that as well as you know a a place where it's larger or where there's more people with more experience doing that with that type of stuff is that uh, does that does that make sense it does i i think it's true that a lot of my work uh for better or for worse has focused on rural areas but i think from what i've seen um sadly I, I don't think that, I think there, there are plenty of, of problems uh, in big city DA's offices and, and police departments as well. And um, I, I don't think it's specific to those rural areas. Mm. And I, for whatever reason, maybe I'm drawn to those narratives. But I, I think what is striking is there's been a lot of attention in recent years on prosecutorial misconduct. And I think that is a hugely important issue and Mm -hmm. have written about it extensively. But the common denominator between every case I've written about that either was a wrongful conviction case or had something wrong with it, the suspect was overcharged or what have you, is bad police work. Mm -hmm. That is the through line between every single one of these cases. And um, there are wonderful people in law enforcement who do great work. and there are people who do terrible work, and they have uh, people's lives in their hands. And I think, um, you know, we're all, we can all fall victim to tunnel vision, journalists as well. And um, I, I think just the more I look at these cases, the more troubled I am by the quality of basic investigations. In, in this case that I wrote about, even though it was in a rural area, it was handled by the Texas Rangers, right. who are basically our state FBI. Right. That's the best you can do. And the Texas Rangers have been mixed up in a bunch of stories I've written about. So 
it's really troubling. Right, right. Well, structurally, uh, you know, the, the story comes in two, two parts. Was that always going to be the original goal, or did you see this as, uh, was there ever any talk of making it three or four or seven or, you know, uh, uh, or one big, super big, long one? Um, can you talk about how the structure came about, um, both in the two yeah. parts, but then in how you laid those out? You know, because part one is very much about uh, what happened. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, and leading through the, the, the two trials and part two is where you come in with, with, um, uh, the bloodstain pattern analysis and you, you, um, have a lot from the newspaper owner who's also digging into this and, uh, and we kind of get the, the next, um, 20 years is probably wrong. It's probably 30 or 40. Um, can you talk yeah, about how the present day stuff? Right, right. Can you talk how how did how did the entire structure of the thing come about? Sure. Well, for some important context, uh, Jake Silverstein, who's the editor in chief of the Times Magazine now, was my editor and boss at Texas Monthly years ago. And when when I was there, when he was still there, we worked on the Innocent Man together, and that was the story I wrote in 2012 um, that was so long, it was 26,000 words, that um, Jake decided to run it across two issues, which that meant there was a month delay between each mm. part, which is so different than, than how things work right. now when everything is moving a million miles an hour. But um, so I, I, I think in the back of my head, I wasn't, over, <clears throat> excuse me, overly worried about length. I just thought, well, if, if this goes really long, then Jake will think of some creative way to deal with this. <laughs> and I don't know if that was the best decision or not, but I just kept writing because um, I had so much story. I wrote much more than, than what ran. And um, I, there, were, there were many iterations of the story. My first draft was I toggled back and forth between the narrative and the science. Mm-hmm. So the first section was Joe, second section was what is bloodstain pattern analysis, third section, back to the narrative. And I think both Tracy and my editor at the Times Magazine, Elena Silverman, um, rightly thought that 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 didn't work. Mm -hmm. And um, it was Elena, we had this marathon phone conversation one day to sort of try to figure out how to rejigger this. And Elena said, um, you know, what if we front-loaded the story with narrative and just you know, get people really, really invested in, um, or not even invested, that's the wrong word, but like engrossed in the story. Right. right. And, and then like once you've, you've got them engrossed, then you go to the science. So mm-hmm. what that meant, I mean, the, the first story is, um, I think it's just shy of 11,000 words mm-hmm. and it's, it's pretty much all narrative. Right. And, I was thrilled that they wanted to do that. You know, I think I was trying to write what I thought a ProPublica Times Magazine hybrid story was. Um, And I think they let me see, well, we can, like, do what we want. We can, the goal is to write the best story that we can. So we moved things around so the narrative was front-loaded. And then a lot of the science and sort of more classic quote-unquote, public interesty stuff is in the second half. And I actually personally thought that was some of the most interesting material. Um, 
I don't know if readers did, but I I hoped that they would stay with the story, and um, and I, I think I think many people did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was it? Um, what was it like to to be working on a story that was going to be published by two different but very big and and very good publications? Um, I think you know I I'm I'm really pleased with how it came together in the sense that there's just so many resources directed toward this. So mm-hmm. like the Times wrote um, this big uh, editorial after the story came out that talked about the importance of strengthening this kind of science. And of course, like to have that kind of attention on the story is, you know, I'd never had anything like that before. That was amazing. And then ProPublica launched this um, newsletter around the story, which over 10,000 people signed up for, which was mind boggling to me. Um, and then we ha- we actually were going to keep reporting out uh, the story of bloodstain pattern analysis mm. for quite a while longer, and we have some some other things in the works that'll be happening later this summer and early fall. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I think going from a wonderful regional publication to two like powerhouse national mm-hmm. publications, um, it, it was it, it was very exciting and just just feeling like okay I've got a big megaphone right now so how am I going to use this I need to really figure out what I want to be writing about next and I think you know negotiating that partnership and making sure that everybody gets what they wanted out of it um, I think all came together and we hadn't all worked together before so it was sort of like everything was new but everyone was really smart and into this and so I felt very lucky to have this whole kind of team working toward this yeah well that's that's fantastic it's a it's an amazing uh story um thank uh, you blood will tell uh which uh is a combination or a partnership between ProPublica and the new york times magazine pam it has been so great talking with you again thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it thanks and and i look forward to seeing uh more of your work thank you so much I've been talking with Pamela Koloff, a senior reporter at ProPublica and a writer-at-large at at the New York Times Magazine. Koloff's first piece for those two news organizations, Blood Will Tell, was published in May. As usual, we've linked to Blood Will Tell and many other Koloff stories on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.